session with Dr. Farid Hulak. Good evening and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tolakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and free podcast on iTunes. Again, the studio number 310-441-0555. Before I do the summary for the book for this past week, the book for this week is Between the World and Me by Tanahasi Coates. Between the World and Me. A very interesting book. I read it um, last year. And because of what happened in Charlottesville, and I wanted to make this a book of the week at some point, um, but especially what's been going on, and not that racism has ever gone away, but it's been even more in the media and a topic of conversation. I wanted this to be the book of the week, which from the Wikipedia page, I just wanted to give the description. It's a letter to his teenage son about the feeling symbolism and realities associated with being black in the United States. So I hope you'll join me in reading this book, a very powerful book, Between the World and Me by Tanahasi Coates. But the book for this past week was Mating in Captivity by Esther Perel. Mating in Captivity, Unlocking Erotic Intelligence. And uh, Esther Perel just wrote a new book, which I have not read yet, called State of Affairs. But this was, I think it's her first book. Um, and her TED Talk, where she talks about infidelity, rethinking infidelity, has over 8 million views uh, and is an interesting watch. I saw it again for, I don't know how many times I've seen it, but I watched it again today uh, before I did the show. And it is very interesting and entertaining. But this book, Mating in Captivity, looking... Um, at love, romance, passion, and really one of those questions we ask. And a book she mentioned that has a title that is Apropos is Can Love Last? The book by Stephen Mitchell, which earlier in the year was a book of the week. And people wonder, um, as she questions on the cover, can we desire what we already have? Does good intimacy always make for hot sex? So one of the issues she brings up in this idea that the first time I ever came across it was in Stephen Mitchell's book, Can Love Last? And she mentions him in the book. Is this idea that we tend to think passion dies in a long-term relationship, almost to the point where we say it's natural, it has to happen, there's no way around it. But as she talks about it and Stephen Mitchell mentions, there is this paradox in romantic relationships. In essence, we are trying to trade passion. We give up passion in order to get security or stability. We give up the excitement of the unknown by telling ourselves that we completely know our partner when this, in fact, is never true. We never fully have someone. We never fully know someone. 
But because we don't want to deal with the anxiety of the uncertainty that we can lose someone or that we don't have that stability that gives us that comfort, we choose to make our partner uh, boring. We say, well, I'm going to keep you boring and known rather than recognizing that I can never fully know you. So we have to, um, in order to sustain desire, we must manage this paradox. As she puts it, a paradox to manage, not a problem to solve. And I think that's a good way of putting it because very often we, when we read books like this or we hear an expert talk, we expect them to tell us, okay, how do I solve this problem? So if we're talking about keeping the passion alive in a relationship, tell me exactly what to do. And it's not something that you just solve once and forever have it solved in your relationship. It's something that you have to continue to manage throughout your relationship, this balance of keeping the passion alive by recognizing I don't fully know my partner. I never fully will. And if I actually recognize that, although it might be a little bit scary because it introduces this idea that because I don't know you, maybe I will lose you or maybe there's something unknown about you. But if we can manage that, then we can actually keep the love alive because something that builds the passion or creates the passion early in the relationship, that erotic passion is this feeling of the unknown. I don't quite know you yet, but there's something exciting about it. But then once we get married, we tell ourselves, well, we fully know each other. And that's where the boredom sets in. We get, we give ourselves this boring feeling about our partner when no one is boring. Everyone has many facets and is very complex. And we have to allow ourselves to accept that about our partners and ourselves in order to keep the passion alive. But I'll go over some of the different ideas she brings up in the book, of course, in just 15, 16 minutes, I can't get to everything. It is a very interesting read, and I, I think she addresses some pretty interesting topics. Um, for example, this idea of intimacy and closeness. For one, she says that there's this idea now that talking is the only way to create intimacy, which is not true. Talking is good, and we usually think of being intimate. Uh, emotionally, we think of talking. You have to tell me everything about you. I tell you everything about me. But there's much more to it than that. Being close is not just about that. But even when it comes to closeness, what's important is that there needs to be space along with closeness. Sometimes we talk about the flame going out when we talk about romantic love. And if we think about a flame, you need the closeness to create the heat, but you also need the space and the distance in order to allow the air to come in to keep the fire burning strong. And we need that same thing in our romantic relationships for that passion, for that flame to survive. To think that we have to always be attached to the hip and close and know everything about each other's life and everything that's going on every moment, although we think it's because we love each other so much, very often it's a way of having control or, again, having that feeling that because I fully know everything, there could be no surprises and I have the security and stability. But with that, we also squeeze the passion out of our marriage when there isn't any space. We need a little bit of that distance. Have your own life. Have your own hobbies, activities that you do um, outside of the relationship in order to help keep the passion alive. Also, she talks about democracy versus hot sex. And this idea that she proposes that's interesting about um how we're going towards equal rights, and this is in heterosexual relationships, and that can be a good thing, but sometimes when we bring that egalitarianism into the bedroom, it could diminish the desire. Sometimes we need 
to keep those poles of male and female alive and to not be afraid to explore things sexually where maybe a woman will want to be treated in a certain way in the bedroom, which might be different than how she is outside of the bedroom, and that can be okay to allow for that variety and to not think that sex has to be a certain way in order to reflect how we feel about women in general or something that we feel um, should be the way things are. Sometimes our desires might be a little different than what we think politically might be the right thing. Now also, there is an idea that sex is a dirty thing. Sex is bad. And so it's a very strange thing. We see it in lots of cultures, and especially in the Middle Eastern cultures, the Persian culture, this idea that sex is bad, especially for a woman to enjoy sex is a bad thing. And for a man to enjoy a woman sexually means somehow he's degrading her, objectifying her. So we can have good sex with someone who's not our long-term partner, but once we love them, we can't anymore. That's wrong. That would be bad. Or especially now she's the mother of my children. How could I see her in that way or have sex with her in the way that I would with someone else? But this is a uh, almost like a dichotomy we create in ourselves. Sometimes we also call this the Madonna whore complex. Either a woman is um, the saintly woman that we cherish and we would never touch because we value her too much, or she is just a whore that we can use sexually and that's all she is when really we can recognize that we can have both in the same person, the sexual attraction along with um, loving them and seeing them as an important and special person. They are not a true dichotomy. It's something we create, and a lot of it has to do with the way we look at sex as something bad and dirty, something we still hold on to, which has these really negative effects. Now, parenthood is also something that can squeeze the desire out of a marriage. It can take away a lot of what the partners feel for each other sexually, but it's something that doesn't have to be the case. It does take some work, but she talks about some ways that we can work on that. And as I said before, a lot can change for both the woman and the man in a heterosexual relationship after a child is born. The woman might see herself now as a mother and someone who is supposed to act, for example, in a certain way. And the man might think, okay, she is supposed to be the mother of the kids. I can't see her in the way I did before or act with her the way I did before. But this, again, is not necessarily true. It's not something we need to do. We can recognize that we can still be erotic with each other, have that erotic connection, even if we are now parents who are taking care of the children or if you're a mother. And also we have to keep sex a priority in our lives. And related to that, something I talked about a couple of weeks ago and also comes up in the book is talking about sex. There's this myth that sex is something natural and because of that you don't have to think about it or communicate about it. It should just work or it should just happen. And I've worked with so many couples married one year, 10 years, 20 years, and they've never had a conversation about sex. Are they satisfied? Do they want different things? Do they feel like they feel good when they're having sex, even just emotionally or physically? How does it feel for them? They've never had that conversation. It's such a taboo, but that's something that you must break and recognize there's no need to avoid this topic. Actually, we need to talk about it to better understand ourselves and what's going on. We're building our sexual life together, and in no way is it something that just naturally works or be, if you have chemistry it's going to work if you don't it doesn't work every couple needs to work on that we can think of it as uh, if you're cooking for someone yeah there's some maybe general things 
that may be true for most people, but you need to see what someone's preferences are and tastes are. They aren't good or bad, but we want to communicate about them. I like less salt. I like more salt. I like this kind of food. I don't like this kind of food. Similarly, for our sexual desires, we have to do the same thing. So keeping sex a taboo topic causes a lot of pain or hurt in the way that we actually can create a satisfying sexual life. Now, as I mentioned, her TED Talk is called Rethinking Infidelity, or she has a few. Um, one of them has 8 million, I think another one even has 10 million. But the one on infidelity became very popular. I saw it circulating a lot, and there's a chapter about the shadow of the third, Rethinking Infidelity. And here she mentions that she takes a, uh, she doesn't take a moral approach when she works with infidelity, which we think of as the ultimate betrayal. Now, in the talk, she mentions that she doesn't say that infidelity is a good thing or that she would encourage anyone to be unfaithful, but she recognizes that because it's so common, rather than just writing it off and saying it's just a bad thing, it could be better for us to try to understand it. And it's possible, um, in what she talks about, to actually make the relationship stronger after an affair. Um, also related to that, something I think is an important point, is that once we feel ourselves attracted to someone else. We can take that as a way of understanding ourselves better, either in recognizing what's missing in the marriage that we want, or maybe even what's missing in myself that I'm looking for or seeking. Maybe I don't like the person I've become and the person I am in this relationship. I want to be someone else, and I'm seeking that outside of the relationship. Now, I do wonder when you read, for example, her chapter on infidelity. If I get that if you've had the affair, it can be good to look at it in this way with this lens of recognizing what was going on and even in general when it comes to the desire. But I sometimes wonder if someone is reading this and is considering having an affair, would they stop themselves? Because in some ways it can make it seem like an affair can have a positive effect on the marriage um, when really you are doing an ultimate betrayal to your partner. So in her TED Talk, in her defense, she says, am I pro-affair or would I ever prescribe an affair? She says, no, just like I would never tell someone to get cancer or hope that someone gets cancer, but many people who get cancer come out and have an experience that makes them stronger in some way. Similarly, she says the same thing about an affair. So again, she's not promoting affairs in any way, but she is thinking we should rethink infidelity, which I think is important when something exists and is happening so often and so frequently. There's a wide range of uh, estimates or statistics, anywhere from 25% to something in the 70% range of people being unfaithful. Well, that is worth looking at and worth understanding. So that I, I can understand significantly. I think it is important. Sometimes I wonder if we can promote something by making it seem like it might be more okay. But in the last chapter and throughout the book, really, it's looking at how you can put more desire and intensity into your sexual life with your long-term partner, something that, that she describes as very possible and something we can do, but it does take some effort, thinking that it's not possible, thinking that naturally desire has to die is not true. And we have to recognize the role we play both in putting out that fire and also the role we play in not taking the steps to keep it alive 
And reading a book like this and, and several others can help us see the steps we can take, the effort we can make, and the dance we can play with our partner to keep the, the love alive, to keep the passion alive in our long-term relationship. Love can last. We can desire what we already have. So that was Mating in Captivity by Esther Perel. Hope you'll check that one out. And the book for this week is Tanahasi Coates Between the World and Me. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Lakwi. Welcome back to In Session with Dr. Fadi Talakwi. In the last segment, I was talking about the book Mating in Captivity um, by Esther Perel, which, as I mentioned, she talks about infidelity. And because of that, I wanted to talk about a saying that we have related to infidelity, um, or it can be used in the context of infidelity, and that is the grass is always greener on the other side. Something we hear people say a lot of times. Uh, in different ways, but I think it's important when we look at infidelity to think about what that might mean or some of the reasons why this can be so. So when we look at that or we think the grass is always greener, one way we can look at that is that things appear better from far away. So what you have, you might look at the grass you have, it doesn't look so green or nice, but you look from far away, everything does look better, which is true. But not only that, when you are looking at the grass from a distance, you don't recognize the work it takes to maintain the grass, the work it takes to keep it uh, looking good and looking like it should. Whereas what you have yourself, you already are seeing the work. You have to put it in and you're experiencing it. And this is one of the ways that infidelity can be so appealing. Or even when we look at today's day and age, even making it easier with things like dating apps such as Tinder, where you can quickly find a hookup, it makes it a lot easier to look at a few pictures of someone, four or five pictures, and compare that with the person who you love and have been with and say, this looks a lot nicer. Um, again, another part of that grass is greener uh, comment or that um, example is that from far away, things look a lot better, but from up close, we're, we're going to see imperfections. And if this is one of the beautiful parts of a relationship is that we actually get to show each other our imperfections. I talked, I think it was two weeks ago, about vulnerability and the power of vulnerability and the fact that because we show someone our true colors, we show them what we think are ugly parts of ourselves or even unlovable parts of ourselves. we actually get to experience that they can love us with those parts of ourselves. And by showing them that, they feel even closer to us. We become closer to one another when we actually look at not just the beautiful parts, the parts we try to make look good and nice and pretty when we first get to know someone, but the parts we might think are ugly, not good, make us bad, weaknesses, whatever you might want to call them. So one of the things that makes love so wonderful, the part that we actually get to show all of ourselves to someone, unfortunately can also in this way backfire inadvertently in that we see the person fully and because of that we see all the good, the bad, and the ugly, which does make us feel closer to them, but also we have seen those faults or we have 
our issues with them because we're now experiencing life with them. And when we look at someone else, of course, there there is no issues. There are no problems. We don't think about the bickering we'll do with some guy or girl we're just seeing a picture of or see on the street. But with our husband, wife, boyfriend, or girlfriend, we're experiencing, oh, here we go again having that fight. Or they're going to bring up that issue again that we just can't seem to get over. And in our mind, when we think of that other person, everything just seems so nice and seems to work out so well. So looking at that grass is greener analogy again, you don't realize that, oh, to keep this part of it clean, you have to keep, you know, every day it gets some dirt on it that you have to move around. Or this part needs extra water, that part needs less water. All the difficult things it takes to maintain that grass and that patch of grass over there, you don't realize, but you know it and you experience it with the person that you have, what you are looking at right in front of you. Also, when it comes to something like an affair, we don't have to worry about a lot of things. When you have a husband and wife together and they have kids, there's all these things they have to work out, doing the dishes, cleaning things, taking the kids to preschool, bringing them back, who's going to do this, who's going to do that, the messes that they have to deal with. But when people have affairs, well, they keep it very simple. It's all about just seeing each other. And even in the fact that it makes it forbidden, something that Esther Perel talks about, that keeps it exciting because you're not supposed to do it. Well, if you're doing then of course, that means it's that much better. Why would I risk everything for this experience, for this moment? And because of that, it stays hot longer. People can have affairs for many years where the passion seems to stay alive. Now, one might tell themselves, see, this is uh, proof that the person I'm having the affair with is the person I'm supposed to be with, or there's something more here. We're more connected to one another. This is my true love. This is my true passion, but I'm stuck with my husband or my wife. But the proof is in the pudding that many times when people actually get a divorce from the person they're with and go with the person they're having the affair with, all of a sudden the passion dies in most cases or many cases because well, it's no longer forbidden. Now it's okay. And really the true test of any relationship that's an adulterous relationship or an affair is what happens now that the affair is no longer an affair and they're just in a relationship because they've ended the other relationship. Now you really see what you've got. And very often people see that there's not much there. What they were experiencing was something that was exciting because it was forbidden. Maybe it was the expression of some type of desire that was unexpressed. Maybe their partner doesn't make them feel desired. Their partner doesn't make them feel wanted. And here they were with someone who was thinking about them all the time, was sneaking away to try to get a phone call or a text in or just to see them. And so it make, made them feel very desired, very wanted. And because of that, it kept it exciting. They were getting something from it they weren't getting from their relationship. And that's the important part that I brought up in the previous segment that I'll bring up again. If you find yourself attracted to someone outside of the relationship, rather than telling yourself this means that that person is right for me, is the best person for me, or I'm supposed to be with them, we should look at what is this desire and attraction telling me about myself or my relationship? What can I learn from this, because very likely it's telling us something. 
And so rather than assuming, well, the grass is always greener because it actually is greener because it's better over there, we should ask ourselves, well, what is it about that grass that's making me want to approach it? And we can't say that every single affair is the result of a bad marriage or something is really going wrong or people are very unhappy, but something is being expressed through that desire and something is being expressed through that affair. And as I was mentioning in the previous segment, I think we want to be careful not to say that, well, because lots of people have affairs and because affairs can end up somehow making a marriage stronger if they realize what was missing, then maybe it's not such a bad thing, which I think sometimes that message can come home to people when they hear the way we can now talk about affairs as somehow reflecting something not so bad and it actually can create a stronger relationship, well, that might send the message that if you're thinking about it, if you're on the fence, well, then why not go for it and you still can figure things out afterwards and maybe even make things better. But I think the more mature response, if we can do that, is to recognize, okay, I do feel this attraction, this desire, and very likely if I were to follow through with it, it would feel very good uh, especially initially, but I do want to think about what I am doing and who I'm doing that to, because we are committing a very bad act towards someone who should be the person we love the most and want to treat the best in our life and want to cherish their heart and their feelings and how they are going to feel should come to our mind when we're thinking about taking that action. So is desire for other people natural? Absolutely. And she talks about it in the book, Mating in Captivity, that to deny that we have that attraction is actually more likely going to hurt us and make us more likely to stray than to acknowledge it exists. Of course, you're married, but it doesn't mean you're all of a sudden blind and have no existence sexually outside of your partner. You're going to still feel attraction to other people. You're still going to feel desire for other people. You might find someone very, very attractive um, doesn't mean your partner is going to be the only attractive or even the most attractive person to you in multiple ways. But you choose to be with your partner because you feel that they are the best partner for you, which includes many things, including how attracted you feel to them, how you feel with them, the life you're creating together, and many more things. So we don't just look at it as what feels the best or what feels right, or we don't just think the person we're with has to be the person I'm the most attracted to, or I shouldn't be with them, or I should also be with other people, but we recognize we're entering a relationship that means I'm going to put other relationships on hold. And we can't even think about, do I want to be in a monogamous relationship? Many people very likely enter a monogamous relationship because they think that's the only thing they can do. Now, can an open marriage work? I have my reservations about that, but Maybe it is possible, but I would recommend highly against that. But we should ask ourselves, just like we even ask ourselves, should we get married or do we want to have kids? Just because everyone was doing it before us doesn't mean you have to do it. And if you don't think you want to be in a monogamous relationship, then don't. But if you do make that promise and commitment to someone else, then we must take that very seriously. So the idea that, for example, well, men have to stray, it's in our nature and DNA, which if you say that, well, then it's also in the nature and DNA of women as well. So it's not really saying much, but that's long been the argument that people use, especially to justify, justify male infidelity. But that's a very simplistic way of looking at things. It's just like saying, 
if I walk by a restaurant, I like the food, it's in my DNA to eat the food and grab it and just walk. Well, yeah, maybe it's in your DNA to eat the things that your body craves to some degree, but it doesn't mean you can just walk by and grab people's food. Similarly, we can't just walk by and grab someone else's partner or cheat on our own partner because it feels right or we think it feels good in that moment. So when we do make that commitment to another person, we have to take that commitment seriously and recognize this idea of the grass being greener on the other side. When you're with someone, you see the good, the bad, and the ugly. From far away, things look a lot easier, cleaner, and more perfect. And when we fantasize about it, when we imagine what things are like, we just imagine the good. We don't realize that, of course, if you're with them, you'll also experience all the other things as well. Just the feeling of attraction or desire doesn't mean that that other person is better for you. And also when we feel that attraction or desire, we want to think about, well, what does that reflect about either me or the relationship that I can understand more? Maybe something's missing in the relationship. Maybe the passion is gone. Rather than thinking we have to spark it with someone new, see if you can spark it again with the partner that you already do have in making that commitment. All right, we've reached our next commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Today is September 11th, 2017. And of course, 16 years ago today on September 11, 2001, we had the attacks that took place in New York at the World Trade Center and uh, at the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. And I can't believe it's been 16 years since that day. Um, I was actually in New York with my brother Parham and one of our cousins, Pedram. Um, and we were actually maybe about a block away from the World Trade Center when the planes hit. We were so close, actually, that when the second plane hit, we felt it shake our hotel. We didn't know what was happening, um, but later on we realized that's actually what we experienced or what we were feeling. Then we came out because they told us all to come to the lobby, and I still will never forget looking at a, a window that had the World Trade Center in view perfectly. I'm sure they designed it in that way. And it looked surreal seeing the two buildings on fire. And that was when I realized something very serious was going on. And I even remember seeing at least one person jumping out of the one of the, the windows um, because, as we later learned, they were, there were fires that were burning so strong that people were jumping out to avoid the fires. And I can vividly remember seeing their person's tie go into the air as they jumped out. Really horrible, horrific things to see and experience. And we had um, quite the experience that day and for the next few days. We uh, were asked to evacuate to Battery Park. And I can say it in a lot longer version, this story, and I have over the years many times. Um, but we were walking together, the three of us actually carrying our bags. We still didn't really understand the gravity of what was going on. We thought we can maybe reach our flights. We were actually supposed to leave the morning of September 11th to leave from New York back to Los Angeles. And we had already finished packing our bags, so we took our bags with us. We had to go to Battery Park, and once we were there, we heard this incredibly loud sound, which 
to me in that moment sounded very metallic, but kind of like a plane engine was coming. And I remember my fear in that moment was they waited till we were all in this one area and now another plane is coming here. But a little bit after that sound, we realized that what we had heard was the first tower collapsing, uh, which was so loud. And then seconds after we heard that, we turn around and we see the d dust that was coming. And you probably saw footage of the waves of dust and debris that would circulate around that area. And we started to get covered in it. And the first place we can go was the ferry station. And we got in the ferry station and they said, no one is allowed to stay on Manhattan. Everyone has to go to Staten Island. And uh, again, another surreal image taking that ferry from Manhattan to Staten Island and seeing the World Trade Center's gone and just some smoke uh, underneath where they were and going past the Statue of Liberty. It really was something uh, surreal. And then we had to spend the next few days in Staten Island. All the bridges were closed. Airports were closed. Um, the, air, the hotel we were at was not prepared to have the capacity of people we had actually we didn't know if we were going to get a room there. We were there for many hours till finally we got a room. And a few days after that, probably somewhere around September 16th, five days or so after 9-11, they finally opened up the airports and we were just so happy to get back home. And actually, before I get to that point, I remember that night having very violent dreams, the night of September 11th, um, just lots of accidents and it's really negative things, I think, from what we had experienced and what was going on in the world. But I think what I felt very lucky about was I think because I had my brother and cousin, who are two of the closest people in my life and still are, along with uh, other family, um, but having them there and the support we had, even sometimes we would joke with each other, we played cards, we just kept each other busy and occupied. I think that probably helped prevent any of us from developing PTSD type symptoms, which many people who were that close to the attacks experienced. But I did, I remember feeling some, uh, like I said, the dreams were more violent, but after that night, I don't remember them being that way. And we just tried to enjoy each other's company and wait things out till finally we can come back home. So I'm very grateful to have them there to go through that experience with, because I don't know, I'm sure it would have affected me a lot more again another reminder of how important family and social support is that it could serve as a buffer to negatively experiencing something or when we experience something negative it can make that result less for us there's research showing that if uh, they had wives holding their husband's hand when they thought they were going to get some pain um, or when they felt pain and the reactions in the brain were less when they were holding someone's hand, a loved one's hand. So it was, they did it, I think, without holding anyone's hand, holding a stranger's hand and their husband's. And holding someone's hand was better than no one, but there was even a stronger reduction in what they experienced when they were holding a loved one's hand. Again, we, somebody's saying, well, what's the point of support? Or it doesn't change anything. But very often when we can't change anything, um, having someone's love or support can be all that we need and what can really help. Just like if someone experiences a very difficult loss, if someone has died or if they go through a breakup, you can't change bringing that person back or that relationship has ended. You can't bring that back for your friend or loved one. But 
just being there for them can actually reduce the pain, can make it easier to go through what they have to go through, the healing they have to go through. So again, very grateful to my brother and cousin to have them there to go through that with them when it was a very difficult time. Nonetheless, we finally get on a plane maybe five days later to come back to LA. And when we're on the plane getting ready to take off, all of a sudden we see both rows get filled up with U.S. Marshals. I remember they had it on their jackets. It said U.S. Marshal, U.S. Marshals. And they came up to the three of us and they said, you three come with us. And the FBI took us off of the plane and interviewed, or if you want to call it interrogated, the three of us separately um, because they told us that we had suspicious flight activity since we flew into New York a few days before September 11th and our exiting flight was September 11th. Also, we were three males traveling together and, of course, very importantly, three Middle Eastern males with foreign-sounding names. And so, uh, in essence, we were victims or we were taken off the plane because of racial profiling. They assumed or they thought we could be dangerous. And basically, we had to prove that we were not dangerous. And they interviewed us about our who we were, what we were doing in New York. They also asked me all sorts of detailed questions about my life to see if my story checked out. And after, I can't remember exactly how long, but I think the whole process was a few hours. They realized that us three guys um, weren't going to get in a fist fight, let alone plan something like a, a terrorist activity or terrorist event. And they let us go back on the plane. No, not really much of a sorry. They did. I don't know if they even said sorry, but they basically said, okay, you can go now. So then we left. And that was quite an experience that really added to the whole event um, to go through that getting interviewed by the FBI. Uh, I think we were in JFK airport and they took us to kind of separate areas so that we couldn't quite hear each other to make sure our stories checked out and finally let us go. Well, that was quite the experience. Um, and I can't believe that was 16 years ago. And I do wish I wrote the story down or what we experienced down because as I've talked about on this show many times, memory is very malleable and it does change over time. It's not a tape recording that we have that we can just go back and play September 11, 2001, and everything is played back with great fidelity and accuracy. But nonetheless, it was quite an experience. And now looking back 16 years later, it was a very dark time. I have lots of thoughts about it that I won't get to share all of, but did want to say a few more thoughts about uh, September 11th and what that represents. To begin with, it was obviously horrific that people would try to take uh, so many lives at once and to do it in such a horrible way. Um, while at the same time saying that, I recognize that there's people in other countries that experience things like that regularly. Now, maybe not to that scale, but almost and very frequently. And even sometimes we are the ones who are doing that bombing that creates that kind of an effect. By we, I mean the United States. So I recognize that as horrible as that was and as devastating it was and how it really shook the whole country and has continues to have effects on the country, um, which we definitely can experience each time we go to the airport or many other things as well. Um, but it's not something that only has affected the U.S. to go through something like that. Many countries deal with things far worse regularly 
Of course, in Syria, we can't even compare what's been happening in that country um, to what we experienced on that day. But also looking at the strategy that we've employed, the war on terrorism, I think although we want to be, you know, we don't want to be short-sighted, but I think it has not been working. And actually, if we look at most war on something, like the war on drugs, definitely has not worked at all. All it's done is really um, done a good job of, it's been a war on essentially poor people and also a war on people of color by putting a lot of people in jail from people of color. That's the war on drugs and the war on terrorism really has not worked either. If you kill one group of terrorists, another group or more groups will sprout up. And although, of course, we were hurt very badly by what happened, um, and the natural reaction is that you hurt us, we're going to hurt you back even harder. Well, we know that strategy is not going to be a long-term winning strategy, especially not a win-win strategy. You can't kill your way to world peace. You can't create war to create peace. Uh, you can only create more peace to do that. You can't uh, create more love. Or, I'm sorry, you can't add hate to hate and think you're going to somehow end up with love and acceptance and tolerance and all those good things that we're hoping for. But really, the idea that I think is American one and lots of other countries have it too, and maybe an old school strategy is to kill all your enemies and then you'll finally feel safe. If only we can kill all the bad guys, all the ones who quote unquote hate our freedom, then we're going to feel okay. And although I think that's the natural reaction, we often think that's the only way it's going to happen, we have seen that that does not work. And I hope that as a society or globally, not just the United States, we come to recognize that this is not going to work. I understand it's easier said than done, and I don't want to say it's just easy for us to all be kumbaya, hold hands, and sing together, but to recognize that in order for there to be peace, we must come together in some way. There has to be some level of recognizing our humanity together that we can actually recognize we're more similar than we are different. The idea of us versus them and that even there is an us and them is malleable. There isn't this idea that there is a clear us and them. Race is something that we have socially created Countries are boundaries that we've created that have also changed throughout history. They're not something that have to be fixed in some way. So the ways that we see ourselves as different are really not all that different. And the ways we see ourselves as having to hate each other don't necessarily have to be so. So, of course, on September 11th, we want to remember all the victims who lost their lives. Those, of course, that's tragic and it's very sad. And also all the first responders, those who died in the process of trying to help others, but also just those who were there responding to help when everyone else was trying to run away. They were running towards the chaos to try to save lives and help. And again, many of them lost their lives in the process. And what I'm saying in no ways to undermine the sacrifices those people made and the loss of life and what we experienced, but to me actually to honor their lives even more we should recognize that we need to change the solution we're trying to, to make in order to reconcile what has happened, change the strategy from trying to hurt and kill others 
to make sure those lives weren't lost in vain and rather try to create more peace. You can't kill all your enemies to get to peace. You can't kill everyone who doesn't like you and think you're going to feel safe. It just unfortunately does not work that way. So I'm hopeful for different solutions with different strategies that will create the type of peace we're all longing for and hoping for. And of course, we remember September 11th as we will every we will every year as a reminder of the worst of what can happen, but also with how people responded, the best of humanity that also showed itself as well. We've reached the end of tonight's show. Again, I'll announce the book for this week, which I really hope you'll join me in reading. It's a shorter book, but very intense. Um, it's Between the World and Me by Tanahasi Coates, and it's a letter that he has written, of course, an extensive one, about 150 pages, but a letter he wrote to his adolescent son uh, looking at racism in the United States, and as he says, racist, uh, he recognized that racist violence has been woven into the American culture and in understanding what's going on in today's America, I think it's very important to read this book. So I hope you'll join me in reading this book, which I'll talk about on next Monday's show. All right, we've reached the end of tonight's program. Thank you to Amir here in the studio and everyone listening out there. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dlokwi. Hope you have a wonderful night. Thank you.